Oh, we have, uh, looking at Isaiah 53 uh, today, and our Savior is suffering in Mark's gospel. We'll go there in a, in a minute, and we're going to look at one verse in Isaiah 53, our scripture reading. It was about the suffering servant, and verse 7 in your Bibles, Isaiah 53, 7, also here on the screen, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. If you were to observe Jesus at his trials, you would say, he is like a lamb that is going to be slaughtered. And a sheep before its shears is silent. Now, I doubt any of you have sheared too many sheep in your lifetime. But you can find on YouTube, as I did this week, videos of shearing sheep. Now, it's not the most exciting thing that you're ever going to watch on YouTube. But you're watching, I'm watching for the purpose of how does the sheep react whenever they are dragged out of their stall, they're put on the ground, their head is kind of in the, in the shear's neck uh, or a vice, so uh, in their legs to, to pin them so that they can shear them without them moving much. And you know what? I've watched several sheep before I got tired of it. <laughs> and you know what? The sheep doesn't make a sound. You hear the shears going, you hear the people uh, doing it, but you don't hear the sheep does not open its, its mouth at all. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. If you were to observe Jesus in Mark's gospel, he would remind you of a sheep. So let's go now to, this is written, Isaiah, 700 years before it's fulfilled in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. We'll look, Lord willing, at the first 21 verses leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, Pastor Ty is going to speak for us on Friday night's service, and he's going to deal with uh, verses 22 and following for the crucifixion. Uh, Then, Lord willing, next Sunday, uh, we'll look at the end of 15 and the beginning eight verses of 16 for the resurrection. My Savior suffers silently. If you have a red-letter Bible, as I do, I, I actually love red-letter Bibles. I won't really buy a Bible unless I can see its red letter. Um, and if you don't, that's okay. But if you have a red-letter Bible, the end of chapter 14 doesn't count because he is recalling, Peter's remembering what Jesus says, and there it's red letters in verse 72. But that's not actually what Jesus says at that time. You will find from verse 51 of the arrest, all the way through the crucifixion, Jesus is not talking. He has one phrase or one sentence or two in the garden in verse 62 of 14. He has a very short phrase that he says to Pilate that we'll see today in verse 2 of 15. And only one of his seven phrases that he says at the cross is mentioned in Mark's gospel in chapter 15, verse 34. Why is that? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus is going to suffer like a lamb who is silent going to the slaughter or before its shears. He doesn't open his mouth. This is a suffering servant of Isaiah and you can see here of 
almost a hundred verses that's recorded, Jesus is not talking. We know he says things in Luke's gospel. We studied that this week. We've already studied Matthew's gospel. We know that he does, he does speak. But in Mark's gospel, him speaking is not recorded because he is presenting him as a servant. When given the choice in a large group of people, the powerful leaders or a servant, who would you rather hear speak? You'd rather hear the leaders speak. When it comes to politics, and it seems like we are always in a political season now, that if we aren't in an election year, that we're talking now about what's coming in the fall of next year, and it just never ends. But you know who is not interviewed? The interns that are interning with the potential candidates. Because the interns don't get time to speak. And everyone isn't concerned with what the interns or the newly hired people in the office of whatever politician cares. All we care is who is going to announce that they're running for president. And let's hear them speak. When it comes to any topic, you'll see that the news is looking for expert. You never have people that are non-experts. The average person, unless they're an eyewitness of some, something that's happened. Why is it that we want to hear from experts and leaders and we don't want to hear from servants? What the servant has to say doesn't really matter. Except if you go back to, and we're not going there, but if you go back to a story in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5, there is a very powerful man who is very wealthy and he has leprosy. His name is Naaman. And in his story in 2 Kings chapter 5, what he says, the kings that he goes to aren't even mentioned by name. They're not important. You know what that text of Scripture brings out for us? Servants. Slaves. Servants and slaves talk, and their advice is good. From Naaman's servant who tells him, hey, there's someone in Israel who can heal you. His name is Elisha. And then Naaman goes and talks to the king, and the servants of the king tell them, go to Elisha. When he gets to Elisha, Elisha doesn't even talk to him in, in, in person. He sends his servant to tell Naaman. He, God is trying to humble Naaman so that he has to listen to servants. This is how God works. And when Naaman doesn't want to wash in the Jordan River seven times, because that's below him, it's Naaman's servants that talk Naaman into doing what God says for him to do to be healed. And he listens to his servant, and he's healed. Why don't people want to hear servants? Oh, we want servants. We just don't want to listen to them. Well, our Savior suffers silently, and we're going to compare how Jesus is compared here with all those around him. And it's really like this from the time of his arrest, that everyone around him is loud and Jesus is quiet. Everyone around him is loud and foolish and Jesus is quiet and wise. And when it comes 
to leaders who are loud and foolish, we don't need more of them. We actually need a quiet, wise servant if we're going to be rescued. We don't need more loud foolishness. And that's what we see in our culture today. You can give yourself a megaphone that looks like social media account. And you can scream your foolishness to the world. And you can get a lot of followers to listen to your foolishness. But if you don't know the servant king who's taken away your sin and gives you his wisdom quietly, you're going to live a loud and foolish life when you really need quiet wisdom. We need this passage because we need to see. Mark shows us what we need to see most, and what we need to see in this passage is an obedient, suffering Savior who comes to deliver us from our foolishness. As we have read through Luke this week and his account of this story, we can see ourselves in Peter's shoes denying Christ. We can see ourselves with the crowd railing on him and mocking him and chanting crucify him. We can see us uh, fearfully watching as he dies. And you remember Luke's account says that the people that left are leaving, beating their breasts like something was wrong. And if you've read through the Gospels now, this is the third Gospel that you've read through, we've read through as a church, we get to the end of the story and say, what did he do to deserve that? Something was wrong. And we're like the crowd watching the crucifixion that leaves saying, man, that was wrong. I don't know what was wrong about it, but it was wrong. We need to see that, though, because we need to be delivered. We are made of the same stuff as the centurions. We're made of the same stuff as Pilate. We're made of the same stuff as Judas Iscariot. We're made of the same stuff as the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. We're made of the same stuff of the publicans. We're made of the same stuff as the Roman soldiers. We're made of the same stuff as the wailing women. We're made of the same stuff as the crowd who is chanting, crucify him. We're made of the same stuff of the disciples who left him and fled. We're made of the same stuff as Peter, who denied that they knew him. We need to see that our Savior suffered to deliver us from our foolishness. And we're going to first look in, in topic as this uh, chapter, verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. What does it reveal about the loud foolishness of humanity? Well, humanity around Jesus in all the Gospels looks weak. Everybody around Jesus looks weak. Only Jesus looks strong here. Even though he could have, Matthew tells us, called 12 legions of angels. 72,000 angels were at Jesus' disposal. All he had to say was, come. And he doesn't do it. And the Gospels present the people around Jesus as weak humans, not knowing what to do with a sovereign Savior, and so they crucify him. Verse 1 of chapter 15 of Mark. And as soon as it was morning, so all of the trials, and there are three trials, there are six trials of Jesus, uh, three Jewish trials, 
a Pilate trial, and then a Herod trial, which could be Jewish, and then back to a Pilate trial. So six trials. Three of them happen in, at night, illegally. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation. We're in Mark 15, verse 1. They held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So this is the third trial. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Because they can't crucify him. They want him crucified. And the Romans have to do that for the Jewish leaders here. Verse 2, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And other than that phrase, Jesus isn't recorded as saying anything from verse 63 of chapter 14 all the way until he's on the cross where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and they're not quiet, they're loud. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? And Pilate probably doesn't say this quietly. He says this directly to Jesus. And Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate does not know Isaiah 53. And those accusing him do know Isaiah 53, but they're not putting it together. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. That's Pilate releasing for the Jewish people in in an effort to try to uh, appease the crowds. The most popular prisoner he would release, verse 7, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. So those who wanted to throw off Rome, he may have been a zealot, we're not told that, um, but he may have been trained to, and he carried out murder Uh, an insurrection against Rome. There was a man called Barabbas. It's interesting. This day should have been Barabbas as one of the other three thieves on the cross. The other two guys are killed for what Barabbas should have been killed for. So Jesus takes Barabbas' place. Verse 8, And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answers them. This is the crowd asking Pilate. Pilate, hey, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy, which is correct, that the chief priests had delivered him up. That's delivering Jesus up to be crucified. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas. This was like a vote by mob. Release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, he's trying to talk them out of it. Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! Crying out loud, foolish. Verse 14, And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, foolishness, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him, Jesus, away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in, purple, in, a, in a purple cloak, 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. This is loud foolishness at its worst. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. We're going to look at three groups of people here, religious leaders, political leaders, leader, and the crowd. What do we learn about weak humanity face-to-face with their servant Savior? How do they treat him? Religious leaders enviously accuse Jesus. If you look at verse 10, this is their motive. Why are they delivering Jesus to be crucified? Pilate perceives this and says it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him. The Gospels tell us that the, Jesus has more followers than the religious leaders, and the days leading up to the crucifixion, from the triumphal entry to the crucifixion, several days there, the Bible tells us, and Luke brought this out, that he was daily teaching and preaching in the temple. So for three, four days, Jesus is teaching and preaching in the temple. From the time he went in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, he cleanses it that day, he goes back to the temple on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and he's teaching the people from the temple publicly. And if you were in the temple, you would have a following. There were different parts of the temple. You can look at it online to see what Solomon's portico looks like uh, in the ancient temple. And there were uh, similar, maybe in size to this, that go down. And the the teacher would stand in the middle and a crowd would follow uh, or sit at their feet. And there would be religious leaders teaching in other parts of that large building. And here is Jesus and his amount of people at, at his feet are much more than all the other scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders. And um, because they can't, they, they don't, aren't teaching the truth. They're teaching what they, how they've always taught, the traditions. And um, Jesus has a larger crowd than they do. They've hated him. They've tried to destroy him for Uh, months and if not years of his public ministry, they have desperately tried to get him out of the picture. Look at verse 3. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, here is Jesus alone and here is a large group of, it says, the chief priests. And they're accusing him of many things. We know from other gospels what they were accusing him. It's not important for Mark to include that other than it's just many things. It's similar to the false things that they heard in there in the just Jewish people, um, private, and uh, their, um, their Supreme Court. But their religious leaders are envious of Jesus and they're accusing him. Verse 11 of chapter 15, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead of Jesus. The religious leaders loudly and foolishly are envious of the Son of God. 
Here is Jesus come to rescue them, to seek and to save those who are lost, and they do not think they need him. They do not think they need a savior. And a lot of religious people today that we tell them, you have to trust Jesus alone as your savior. They will scoff, they'll ridicule, they will say, don't bring that up again to me. They're envious of Christ. They twist who Christ is. They neglect clear scripture of who Christ is, what he came to do. They add to what Jesus came to do or add to the gospel. All these are perversions. And religious leaders need a suffering servant savior to save them from themselves. Most of the religious leaders rejected Jesus in their loud foolishness and they look really weak. Second is the political leader. Oh, the crowd, okay? The crowd foolishly chooses and condemns. Now think about this. You are in, in or around Jerusalem and you have the choice of two neighbors. One neighbor you would love to spend time with your children and love to teach him carpentry and would love for him to teach them the Old Testament and love for him to have a meal with you. This person would be Jesus. The other person that you could have living next to you is a murderer, a terrorist. Someone who you would say, kids, do not go in his yard. And you choose the terrorist over the servant. What are you thinking? You're not thinking. That's how we are foolish. We do not think logically. Why can't these people think logically here? Because of envy. When you're envious of somebody and you listen to loud foolishness, you're going to choose incorrectly. If you think right now that the biggest deal in our country is what Fox News tells you, you're going to make a lot of foolish decisions. Why? Because there's something bigger happening in our country that Fox News is not reporting on. People are turning from their sin and trusting Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. That's a bigger deal than who's running for president. And Fox News doesn't get it. Most talk show hosts, conservative talk show hosts that many of you listen to, day in and day out, they don't get it either. Whenever you take time away from that and you read Luke, 21 to 24, over and over, and you think about it, and you meditate on it, you're like, whoa, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to judge the world. He's going to set all things right. And your agitation that you feel after you watch Fox News and listen to talk radio hours and hours a week doesn't do it for you. Like, you read the Bible, and you're like, okay, all of this stuff that I have, all of my 401k, all of my investments, 
all of the money that I have in the bank is really, doesn't really matter. And it doesn't. But see, we, gotta, we have to think of who we're listening to. If we're listening to a highly politicized culture, a culture that is secular, the culture that doesn't need God. We are warned in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't listen to the counsel of the ungodly, which is you don't need God. And when you come to church, and when you have Sunday school and church and fellowship time, you know what? You should walk away like, we, we really need God. <laughs> we need God. We need a church. We need each other because the world is not telling us what we're hearing here. And we could be making a lot of foolish choices. We could be laying up a lot of treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves can break through and steal. And we are neglecting laying up treasure in heaven. And we gather as God's people and we aren't that concerned if people take all of our treasure on earth because they cannot take us from God's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The crowd foolishly chooses a terrorist instead of the suffering Savior. And then, loudly, foolishly, condemns an innocent man, the only innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth, to death. How foolish is that? It's loud. It's the crowd. Everybody's doing it. It's wrong. It doesn't matter if everybody's doing it. If everyone is wrong, don't do it. And the Bible tells us what is right and what is wrong. And we cannot foolishly follow the crowd because we will choose incorrectly much of the time. And the political leader. We see him as somewhat neutral as he is presented in the other Gospels as well. Although he has the power to condemn, he has the authority to uh, put someone on a cross, and he has previously... He questions Jesus in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Not curious here. Probably just going through the formalities, which we have seen in other Gospels. He's just going through the motions. He is just like a puppet on a string. He questions Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? He, you have said so. Um, and he asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? But Notice verse 5. As Jesus makes no answer to the multiple accusations against him, Jesus makes no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate's wife, we know in another gospel, is having dreams about Jesus and says, have nothing to do with this man. And he doesn't listen to his wife. And he doesn't listen to the justice that he has probably learned to, has to enforce. Instead, what is he listening to? He's also listening to the loud foolishness because he's a weak human. Yeah, but he's the governor of this area. It doesn't matter. Governors make wrong choices. And look at verse 
15. 14. And Pilate says, so why, what evil has he done? Justice demands, I can't put someone to death unless I have evil that he has done. And Pilate says, I've found nothing wrong with him. He sends him back to uh, Herod, another gospel says. He comes back to Pilate a second time. Still, Herod and Pilate, the the two uh, political leaders, find nothing wrong with Jesus. Nothing worthy of death. And yet, why don't they release him? Because they're weak. They're foolish. They're loud. They've got the microphone. They've got the position. Political leaders question, and then they cowardly do what pleases the crowd. Today, cowardly doing what will get them elected. So Pilate, verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. This is so wrong. Barabbas has done everything logically to be scourged and put on a cross. Jesus has done nothing wrong, and yet he's the one who is scourged and put on a cross. Why? Because the loud foolishness of weak humanity. We're not going to end with these guys. We're going to look at the quiet wisdom of our servant Savior. Let's hold your hand here and go back to Proverbs 26.4. Jesus knows the Old Testament. He knows what to do whenever you're surrounded by foolishness. You may find yourselves the only Christian at a party, and the party people think that you're a fool for not living the lifestyle that they live. You may be in an office tomorrow where you're the only Christian and mocked for not living, as we saw in Luke, uh, with dissipation and drunkenness this weekend. How do we respond whenever we are surrounded by fools? Well, Proverbs 26.4 tells us, Proverbs 26.4 says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. This goes for online foolishness. This goes for in-person foolishness. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. All of the foolish accusations that when Jesus is faced with them. Back in chapter 14, if you look at verse 61, the foolish lying, the false accusations. Look at verse 61 of chapter 14, Mark 14, 61. But Jesus, he remained silent and made no answer. It was all this foolishness he's not going to answer. And then the foolish accusations of against in front of Pilate by the chief priests accuse him of many things. All those are foolish accusations. What does Jesus do in verse 5 of chapter 15? Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus silently doesn't answer a fool according to his folly. Obeying Proverbs 26. For Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. Wisdom in the flesh. What did Jesus do? 
when surrounded by foolishness, he didn't even speak. Now, there are a lot of times that we're surrounded by foolishness and we know how it's foolish and we know the wisdom that we just, whoa, we want to blast somebody with wisdom. You can do it online, you can do it in person. And sometimes the most wise thing is not post anything. It's not to say anything. What did Jesus do? He obeyed Scripture. Second, he silently fulfills Scripture. We've already seen this. As a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. As a lamb to the slaughter. If you were to observe Jesus, and we can in Mark's gospel, look at these events and say, this reminds us of a lamb before its shears or a lamb going to the slaughter. Jesus' beard is pulled out, and then eventually he's going to be slaughtered on a cross. He silently fulfills Scripture. He knew that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He knew what was written about him. This is wisdom. This is wisdom at its best. When the world is at its worst, Jesus fulfills Scripture. And finally, Jesus silently plays his role. Hold your hand here in Mark 15 and go to John 1. What is Jesus' role? Jesus' role in John 1, that he knew his role. John the Baptist knew John's role, John the Baptist's role, and he knew Jesus' role. He knew why he was here. He was to make straight. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And when the Lord comes, Jesus comes on the scene publicly, and John makes this connection in people's minds. In verse 29 of John 1, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is. He is revealed. Jesus' role is the Lamb of God. You can see how this is all connected to the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He is the Lamb of God. He plays his role perfectly. Why? Because it's wisdom. Jesus is perfectly wise. All around him is loud foolishness. And here is a silent, quiet Savior knowing what he is doing, knowing how he has to behave, knowing that he is going to a cross as the substitute. He's playing his role. And the Father is going to be pleased. And all of us are pleased. See, what did the loud, foolish, weak humanity need in this passage, they needed a suffering servant. They did not need more power. They didn't need Jesus to wipe off Rome and start anew like they thought just a few days earlier when he's in on this horse or the, the colt that we celebrate today, Palm Sunday. The crowd 
The political leaders, the religious leaders needed a suffering servant who would save them from themselves, from their foolishness. And if he, Jesus, has saved us from our foolishness, what is our lives supposed to look like? We are now free from our foolishness for one purpose. 1 Peter 2.23 says this. Now this is Peter writing who was reconciled to Jesus. The day that Jesus resurrected, he appears to Peter privately, I assume. And I assume they get right with each other then. Peter gets right with Jesus, right? And so 1 Peter 2.23 says, this is in the context of slaves obeying your masters. Your masters who are cruel to you, who you do not like, who you have a hard time slaving away for them. That's the context of 1 Peter 2, 23 says this. When he, Jesus, was reviled, which is this passage, Mark 15, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How do we live this way? What did Jesus do? As he was reviled and as he threatened, this is what he did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He got an unjust, unfair trial. It's obvious. By foolish, loud people. And all the while, Jesus is entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when you get the short end of the stick, when you don't get justice and you're so bent out of shape and it it bothers you for weeks, months, or even years, you need to learn what your Savior did. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. There is coming a day all of the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees are going to stand before the judge and they're going to get justice. Pilate, the little, weak, worthless, you just want to strangle Pilate, right? There's going to come a day that he's going to stand before the judge of the whole earth and receive what was coming to him. He's going to receive justice. The dead, small and great, in Revelation 20, are going to be resurrected, and they're going to stand before the great white throne, and that on that throne is Jesus. All those who pierced him are going to stand before Jesus, and they're going to get justice. How did Jesus endure this? He endured it by continually entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs and others who, have, who were faithful to the Lord and received all this injustice. What do you do? What do you do if your property is taken away, all of your 401k is taken away, and you're put in prison as a Christian? 
in the United States of America. You entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. We hold lightly to the treasures of this world. If God wants to take them away, that's his prerogative. He wants us to trust him day to day for how we're going to provide for ourselves. That's up to him. One day, all the injustice will be made right, and we need to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. The second thing we just see in the next verse. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why does he bear our sins in his body on the tree? So that we might die to sin. We might die to foolishness. We so want justice now. We so want to answer a fool according to his folly. We so don't want to be like Jesus. We want to be like the loud foolishness of our world. We want to give it to them. We want to give them what's coming to them. We want to tell them a go and give them a piece of our mind. Well, you can. And you can be loud foolish and show you you're a weak human like the rest of humans. Or you can say, what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly and he dies in our place with our sins in his body on the tree for the purpose that we might die to sin and we might live like he lived. And by his wounds... You have been healed from your foolishness. From your, I'm going to get even. I'm going to get more than even with them. This is not how Christians live. This is not how we think. We entrust ourselves to the one who will judge the person who did us wrong. We do not have to open our mouth and let foolishness pour out and corrupt communication come out of our mouth. No. We can let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from us with all malice, intent to hurt someone. And we can be kind, forgiving, and tender-hearted for one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. We have been forgiven our foolishness. Christ has died on the tree take our selfishness from us and we'll gladly let him have it. And by his wounds we've been healed. We've got to learn to die to sin. And there's no better way to learn to die to sin than to look at the cross. Go back to the cross. See, all suffering in this earth is temporary. This light, momentary affliction, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, is but for a moment. And it works in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that God wants to change us by His Spirit in the inner man as we look at the glory of our Savior. We look at all we have to endure on this earth with a lot of foolishness around us and foolishness within We have to be willing to suffer silently while slandered. We have to be willing to suffer silently while fulfilling God's word. God told us that those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
we are, to, we are promised that the blessing of God would be on us whenever we are reviled. And all manner of evil is said against us falsely for Jesus' sake. We're blessed. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Are you willing, though, to suffer? Are you willing to die to your foolishness and sin that Jesus paid for? And then, are you willing to suffer silently if that is God's plan for how you will best glorify him? See, Peter wasn't willing at the time of Jesus' arrest to suffer. And Jesus tells him in John 21, Peter, there's going to come a day that you're not going to go where you want to go. You're going to be led. And it says in John 21, Jesus prophesying what death Peter was going to die. He's going to die as a martyr. You say, how is martyrdom part of God's plan to glorify Jesus? We're thinking like foolish humans here. We're not thinking the big plan. And God's big plan for many Christians down through the ages has been to glorify the Savior by dying for him. See, that's so foreign in a comfortable Christian USA type of mindset. But that is not foreign to many believers around the world right now. That's a reality. They've got friends and family and their pastor has all, have all been killed for the sake of Christ. See, we need to look at the gospel and look at the New Testament and ask ourselves, am I willing to suffer? If not, I probably haven't died to my sin yet. I haven't died to my foolishness yet. I still got to die to myself, take up my cross daily, and follow him. And, and God's plan for you may be to suffer physically, to suffer financially, and that's going to glorify him. You're going to have opportunities to glorify him, and you'll leave that in God's hands. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for Christ and how he suffered. Challenge us with how we think about our lives and how we listen to so many loud, foolish things around us and we listen to our loud, foolish heart within us and we don't. We lean on our own understanding. We don't listen to you. We don't listen to your word. We aren't following your son. We're following some other people. And I pray that you would help us to realize why you suffered, why you bore your sin, our sin, on the tree so that we might die to sin and live toward righteousness. Help us to be willing to submit to the Holy Spirit this week as we meditate on that truth from 1 Peter 2.24 until we learn and understand how to die to sin and live to righteousness. Thank you for showing us our perfect example of our suffering servant. Thank, are so thankful that he took our sin, our foolishness, and gives us his righteousness. Help us to live like him. Help us to be silent and quiet and wise like him this week. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.